What's up, Joe? What's up, everybody? This is Sports 360, and I'm your host, Jeff Fennell. I welcome you to the first of what I hope and believe will be many episodes of Sports 360, a podcast that focuses on the people and the issues in and around sports. There are a lot of interesting people doing a lot of interesting things in sports that I believe can encourage, inspire, and enlighten. And we want to bring it to you in a style that is straightforward with no nonsense and no pretense. On the first edition of Sports 360, we have former Major League player Phil Bradley. Phil played eight seasons in the majors from 1983 to 1990. And for the past 19 years, he has worked as an official for the Major League Baseball Players Association. Phil joins us today to talk about his experiences in baseball, both on the field and off. It promises to be a good one. So hang with us on Sports 360. I'm joined now by former Major League Baseball player Phil Bradley. Phil, how are you today? I'm doing great. Good to, good to be talking to you. Yeah, good to be talking with you too. And I'm uh, I'm really uh, excited about this and honored, really, that you are our very first guest on Sports 360. So, um, you know, thanks for, for, for agreeing to be with us today. Uh, oh, yeah. It's just good to know people in, in high places. That's all that's about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's how I feel. Um, Phil, you, you played in, in, in the major leagues for uh, eight years, and I guess um, there's a lot I want to talk to you about today, but um, let, let, let's first talk about that. And I guess where I'd like to start is um, get your opinion on how different is the game today in the way that it's played uh, compared to when you played back from 1983 to 1990. I think the biggest difference in the game today is, is the amount of money in the game. You know, when I was in the major league back in, in the 80s, the revenue streams just simply coming into the game weren't nearly what they are today, you know, approaching $9 billion. So so players were were fighting over a lot less money. And when I say fighting over it, you know, there's only so much money that goes around the players. So salaries were a lot less. And it made a difference uh, in your salary if you didn't go out and produce. I mean, back then it was about producing. You know, you had to produce to, to, to keep a job and to keep a job to earn money. And, and it, was, it, was, it was very different back then. Sure. And what about the game, you know, on the field? I mean, to, you know, in today's game, you know, we see a lot, you know, a lot in terms of home runs, uh, strikeouts. We don't see as many stolen bases as perhaps when you were playing. Um, what do you account for the difference? Just the belief that success today comes from striking out hitters and hitters hitting home runs. Uh, again, and I'm going to say back in the day, you know, players were more complete players. You know, uh, Hal McCray, uh, a designated hitter with the Kansas City Royals, I remember one day him telling me at the batting cage when I was a young kid, he said, you know, if you, if you come to the ballpark every day and do one thing, and that one thing doesn't have to be a hit, 
It can be a stolen base. It can be a sacrifice bunt. It can be a good play in the field. But if you if you do one good thing every day and take it home and put it in your closet, at the end of the season, you have a closet full of good things. And And I think today hitters get more focused on, from a hitter's perspective, hits, and more importantly, how many home runs do I hit? And for pitchers, it's not necessarily how many wins do I have, but how many strikeouts do I have? And and when we played, it was about the scoreboard. The scoreboard was the most important thing because at the end of the night, it, the team that had the most runs won. So you played your game, and the managers managed the game with the scoreboard always the number one priority. And that's interesting because today it seems as if, you know, the stats are the number one priority and not just for players, but also for managers. Um, You know, we've already seen this year, um, Gabe Kapler with the Phillies, uh, you know, he's one of those new age managers, right? Managed by the numbers and he's not alone. There are others that are like that. Um, But baseball seems to be dominated today by big data. Right. It's all about the, all these different statistics, new statistics every day. Uh, how much do you think that is playing into how the game is played? It's playing more into it than probably when we played. Because obviously every day we had the same uh, uh, sports information people that would, would bring statistics into the locker room saying, well, Phil Bradley's career batting average off of such and such pitcher was was X, and I'm sure managers were aware of it. And, and as a player, I had a pretty good idea of guys that I had success off of versus guys that I didn't. The difference back then was uh, if I was facing a, a pitcher that that I didn't have much success off of, I just knew it was going to be a lot harder day at the yard for me. I knew that my work was going to be cut out for me that day because of the fact that this pitcher was tough on me. His matchup with me was not in my favor. Today, I think they take those same statistics and create a, a scenario which, which means, well, if Phil Bradley's only hitting 195 off this pitcher, that just means that he can't hit him. That's not always the case. The numbers. You know, there's that, uh, that there's that phrase, numbers don't lie. But sometimes numbers do lie. You, right. uh, there are guys that you hit well. For instance, Storm Davis. Storm Davis was a very good pitcher. I, I would venture to say I hit over 400 off of Storm Davis. <laughs> but the dirty secret was, Storm Davis would throw two fastballs right by me with two strikes on me, try to sneak a curveball by me, and I got to hit off of him every time. That's the dirty secret of it. You know, sometimes it's a function of pitchers making mistakes and and you capitalize on it. There's other times when a hitter might have a high average off of a pitcher, but it has a lot of fluke hits. There's other times I might hit the ball really hard off of a pitcher, but those balls get caught. The numbers don't always tell the whole story, and sometimes we need to look into the numbers and see what really makes up the numbers. Sure, sure. Now, speaking of numbers, um, I was taking a look at your playing stats before 
this call. And um, for your career, you hit 286, stole 155 bases. Um, and I think you had four or five years where you had 20 or more stolen bases. Um, and back then, I mean, Ricky Henderson was dominating. He was stealing 100 bases, 80 bases, you know, every year. Um, we don't see the type of play today in terms of stolen bases. Um, what's your opinion about that? Why do you think stolen bases uh, are not as much a part of the game today as it was back when you played? Back when we played, the stolen base w- was used to put ourselves in scoring position. It was, a, it, it was considered an offensive play. It was it was considered a play in which if I'm on first base, I'm trying to get myself in the scoring position, figuring more times than not I'm going to score on a base hit. Today, I don't believe that uh, baseball people they they consider it to be a a risk and reward, and they feel like the reward isn't worth the risk. In other words, they value that out much and therefore they feel like uh, this, this next guy might hit a home run so he can score from first base on the home run. We we didn't see it like that. If I got on base and I had an opportunity to get in a scoring position with the stolen base and the next guy got me in on a hit, it might only take one hit to score a run. But if you play station to station it takes three singles. It takes three singles to score a runner, that first hitter. And and, uh, I think that's the biggest difference. And speaking of Ricky Henderson, Ricky Henderson, you might walk Ricky Henderson. He's still second and third base on you. Ricky Henderson could dominate a baseball game on the bases. And the reason I say that was when Ricky Henderson got on first base, everybody was nervous. The pitcher was nervous, and the players in the field were nervous. I mean, I'm, I played left field, and I was nervous because he could dominate the game that much just with his speed and his ability to steal bases. You ever you ever encounter another player like that? Uh, you know, whether it was you know a stolen base uh, type of a guy or you know, another hitter that you said when, when they came to the plate, when they, you know, were in the game on the base pass or whatever, made you nervous like Ricky Henderson made you nervous when he was on the base pass? Dave Winfield. Dave Winfield terrified me in the outfield because he could hit the ball so hard, so hard that he could hit it and get it get on you where you could literally get handcuffed by a line drive that Day Winfield could hit. I saw Day Winfield hit a, a, a ball off of Mark Langston one year in Yankee Stadium where he hit a line drive that Mark Langston ducked on, and this ball went over the center field fence. I've never seen <laughs> the other player was Andre Dawson. Now, I didn't play against Andre very much. I played against him one year in the National League. He was the same way. He could hit the ball so hard that he minimized your range, even in the outfield. And and it, it, it was literally terrifying. And I, you talk about feeling bad for third baseman. I, 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 
felt bad for third baseman when they faced Andre Dawson. I can only imagine if 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 you were feeling terrified out in left field, I, they they must have just been, you know, ready to die. Um, oh, and and the pitchers alone. I mean, now the pitchers got to eat. Poor guy, got to go figure out how to get these guys out. Sure. I mean, but it, it but because I played against Dave Winfield a lot. I played in the American League, and it was. Years where he's with the Yankees, and when I was a young kid, and so I saw him probably yeah, uh, as much as anyone. And George Brett, but George Brett was just a tremendous hitter. He it wasn't that George would make you nervous with how hard he hit the ball. He just made you nervous on on how well he would hit the ball and how much pressure he put on the defense trying to defend him. Right. Now, Phil, you played for eight years, and I recall a conversation you and I had a few years back where um, you believe you um, could still play in the major leagues even though your career ended. And you had mentioned to me uh, that you believe that your union activism, because you were involved in, in bargaining, you were an active member in bargaining, that that had some impact on your career ending when it did in the major leagues. Um, what can you tell us about that? Well, back in 1990, um, I was the alternate American league player representative. Uh, what that meant was that that got me a seat at the bargaining table. In 1990, there was a, in 19, after the 1989 season, the owners locked the players out. What that really meant was players couldn't use the, the ball club's facilities during the off season. And what ended up happening was this lockout moved into night, the spring of 1990. And we were ended up being locked out of spring training for probably four or five weeks. Um, being uh, probably a vocal member of the negotiation committee, uh, I believe that I uh, I don't know if I personally offended owners on the other side of the table, but yet I left an impression that I, I feel like resulted in me not getting the contract after the 1990 season. Now, there was never a grievance filed and, and not a big deal made of it. I just know that uh, Gene Orser mentioned it to me in passing that that's probably played into the early dismissal of my, of my baseball career. Now, if you ask me today, would I have done, done it all over? If doing it all over again, would I have done it any differently? And I would tell you no, because I felt like what I was doing at the time was right. Um, the causes that I was fighting for were the right causes. And at the end of the day, it wasn't about me anyway. It was a, <laughs> and the funny thing about a lot of things in the 1990 
bargaining and, and collective bargaining agreement were, they really weren't for me. We were trying to get back some salary arbitration rights. We we were doing some a lot of things that me being a six-year player, they really didn't have a, a direct effect on, on my career, but yet it had a direct effect on a lot of players' careers. Yeah, and that, that last part is interesting, right? Because so in some ways, you know, your career may have prematurely ended because you were fighting for the rights for players who were at different stages of their career. Um, and, and again, I can't personally take credit for, but I know I was part of the negotiating committee that got, at that time, I believe, 17% of two-year players' salary arbitration rights back. I was part of the negotiating committee that when a player gets outrighted for the second time, now he has choices he can make as to whether he wants to go back with that team or if he wants to become a free agent and go to a different team. I was part of that same committee that got rid of repeater rights for free agents. It used to be a time when you got to become a free agent at six years. It took, after six years, it took you another five years to become a free agent the second time. So there were a lot of things that benefits the players enjoy today as as a result of what we did. And, and one of the biggest things was getting the, our second trainer on a benefit plan. For many years, the second trainer on a major league team worked just like the first trainer, but had no benefits that he, his uh, pension and his health insurance were not paid for by the benefit plan. So, you know, again, looking back at that long winter, a winter in which I literally lived in New York all winter, and I was really from Missouri. Yeah, it was it was a tough winter, but it was very rewarding in a lot of ways. And after that winter, um, when your when your MLB days were over, you uh, played for a time in Japan. How long were you? How long did you play in Japan? I played one year. I was a free agent at the end of the nineteen ninety season. I received zero offers. My only offer to play was in Japan for the Tokyo Giants. We went over there. When I say we, my wife and kids and I went over there in the season of 1991. And honestly, it was probably the second best year of my baseball career. I, I played very well. Uh, I had a hard time adjusting to their their way of playing. But nevertheless, I performed very well, thinking, okay, I'll come back to the States in 1992. I'll have a chance to sign on with someone. I went to spring training with the Montreal Expos in 1992. I got released the last day of spring training. Um, went home for probably three weeks, signed with the... Anaheim Angels AAA team, went to Edmonton, Canada, 
played uh, maybe about eight weeks up there. Asked for my release from there, played like seven weeks in Des Moines, Iowa for the uh, Chicago Cubs triple A team. And as it turns out, that's where my career ended in the uh, summer of 1992. Now, you mentioned that your year in Japan was your second best or second most enjoyable year. What was your first? What's at the uh, top of first, the list? My best year is in 1985. It, it, it was without a question when you look at my statistics, it was my coming out year. And if you took my career today and looked at it through the eyes of, 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 of baseball today, some people might wonder, uh, was I uh, – chemically enhanced. <laughs> I mean, you, you did Causing, go from zero home runs to 26 right. home runs. Right. Uh, right. And, and, and I'll go on one step further. I played two and a half years of minor league baseball, which I hit three home runs. I hit one home run in my rookie ball season. I hit zero home runs in my A ball season. And I hit two home runs in my triple A season. I go, I played, the 1984 season was my rookie season. I had over 300 at-bats. I had zero home runs. And I didn't even come close to hitting home runs. So one person would say, well, I I only hit home runs on on the odd years or whatever. You know, 81, (laughs) 83, 85, you know. But I'll go, I get the spring training and, in 1985, we had a new manager and a new coaching staff. And the hitting coach's name was Darren Johnson. And I didn't know Darren Johnson. I, I, I don't even know that I was aware of who he was when I got to spring training. Now, I was brought up my whole first three years in pro ball of get on top of the ball, hit the ball on the ground. I could run, use your speed, you know, hit the ball the other way, all these things, okay? So I get the spring training in 1985, and not too long after spring training begins, Darren Johnson walks up to me and says, um, uh, I think you could hit home runs like, like Ryan Sandberg. I said, yeah. Excuse me? <laughs> this man believed that I could hit home runs. Now, I I chose at the time to put my trust in him, and he proceeded to start to teach me how to change my swing to give me a chance to hit home runs. Now, he was a disciple of Ted Williams, and Ted Williams believed that this baseball swing was was level, but with a slight uppercut, simply because the pitcher being on a 10-inch mound was throwing down at you. So you had to kind of to get into the plane of the ball. With your follow-through, you would, you would come up to allow you to, to elevate the ball. Darren Johnson spent... Day in and day out, starting to teach me how to hit home runs. 
And the first thing he did is gave me a fungo bat, and just I just hit balls into a, a net. I, I threw balls up in the air and just swung because I had to learn how to swing with two hands because I was a one hand. I used to have a top hand follow through. Again, this started in spring training. This wasn't like he called me up in November of 1984 and said, we're going to start working on this. I started working on this in the spring of 1985. And I didn't play a spring training game for at least three weeks. All I did was practice. Well, he started to build the principles of this new swing. And the last game of uh, the last week in the spring training, we went to Denver, Colorado. We played in the old Mile High Stadium where the Denver Broncos used to play. And we had an exhibition game against the Cubs. Well, before the first exhibition game, there was a home run hitting contest, and Darren Johnson put me in it. Now, again, I hadn't hardly – I was far from perfecting this new swing. I hadn't hardly even practiced it with it. He put me in this home run hitting contest, and I hit home runs. Okay, that's fine. That's home run, home run derby. We're in the, the last game. And I'm facing Lee Smith. Now, I only face Lee Smith every spring. He played for the Cubs. I was in the American League. But usually once every spring I face Lee Smith, and it was it was good morning, good afternoon, good night. It was <laughs> fastball, fastball, fastball. And I couldn't hit I couldn't hit him. I mean, I couldn't hit him. Right. So that game on my last at bat of spring training, Lee Smith throws me a slider that hung, and I hit a home run off of Lee Smith. And you know they sometimes say it only takes one swing to lock in your swing. That one swing locked me in for what turned out to be my best season in the major leagues. Wow. Yeah, because that yeah. season you were an all-star and – um, you hit 300 that 26 year, too. 26 home runs. Yeah, I mean, I did everything I've been doing up to this point. I hit 300. I sold bases. But now I had the element of power. I had the element of driving and runs. And I did this all from the, from the two spot. Okay? And now it positioned me. It allowed me to go to salary arbitration that year. It allowed me to go from... Uh, I believe I was making sixty thousand. I think, I think, I think after the eighty, I think after that season, I with bonuses, I made seventy five thousand dollars. After the eighty five season, it allowed me to go to salary arbitration, in which I think I ended up making like four hundred and seventy five thousand dollars. Wow! Yeah. And even though that's a significant raise, um, just hearing those numbers when, when you think about the salaries of today, it just it just makes you shake your head. Well, listen, we got a few minutes. I want to ask you a couple of um, other questions. I mean, right now you you um, you you've been a part of the Major League Baseball Players Association as a special assistant for how many years now? Nineteen. This is my nineteenth season. And and what 
you know, how would you describe your current role? What is it that you do today? My current role today is I deal with domestic and international special events. In other words, if we, if like for instance, this year we're going to have the Indians and the Minnesota Twins are going to play a two-game series in San Juan, Puerto Rico. The Dodgers and the Padres are going to play a three-game series in Monterey, Mexico. The Mets and the Phillies are going to play a one-game, a Sunday night baseball game in Williamsport, Pennsylvania. I'm responsible for the facilities. I go look at the stadium, make sure the field is, is up to major league quality, uh, make sure the facilities safety is up to major league quality, the clubhouses, uh, everything that that is important to a major league player, that's my responsibility. Um, this is my second season of doing this, and prior to that, I was a, uh, for 17 years, I was the one of the conduits between the players and the officials in New York. I'd go out and visit with players, listen to their, their complaints to their concerns. I would relay their these concerns, their complaints back to New York. I was kind of like a field, off, field uh, officer, and that's what I did for 17 years. Okay. Um, I guess uh, there was a lot of other things I wanted to talk to you about uh, this morning, but, um, you know, there are two interesting stories that you told me. Um, you know, we uh, when we had conversations in the past, one was your place in history as it relates to Roger Clemens and his 20 strikeout performance. Um, I don't even know what year that was, but I'm sure you remember. 1986. Uh, 1986 and yeah. uh, you were uh, number 20 in that game. And you, you told me something back then about, I think you were called out on, on strikes uh, in that. At -bat. By Vic Battaglio. <laughs> yeah. I was called out on strikes, and actually I was, that was, that was the number, the 20th strike. I was my fourth strike out of the night. Um, uh, to this day, I mean, I don't know. There for for many years, it it, it happened in, in like April twenty ninth, April twenty sixth, nineteen eighty six. For years on end, every year that the anniversary, they showed it for years on years on end, and I I still maintain to this day that the pitch was inside. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> today you know and whenever someone does something great in sports it's usually at the expense of someone else when 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 hank aaron hit his 714th home run most people will say well who did he hit it off of and they'll say al downey right you know that they know you know because it it takes two to tangle in the sport of baseball and you know, the, the other famous, not-so-famous moment in my baseball career was I was the leadoff hitter, 
in the first night game in Wrigley Field, August the 8th of 1988, which I think we're coming up on the, I believe this year will be the 30-year anniversary of it. Uh And I remember that night like it was last night. It was it, it was a, it was a hot, humid summer evening in Chicago. So humid that the group the the, the Chicago great players Willie uh, Ernie Banks and Billy Williams were there. They were they were in suit coats, and it was so hot they were sweating through their sport coats. That's how hot it was, <laughs> and. Rick Sutcliffe was the pitcher, and the fourth pitch of the game, he hangs me a slider, and I knock it out. Not only hit it over the fence, I knocked it out of the stadium. <laughs> and the fourth inning of the game, it started raining. It never quit. The game was 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 postponed, and the game didn't count, so it wasn't the first official night game. So now I don't get credit for the first hit in the Cubs night game. Um, More importantly, when you look at my whole baseball career, I had 99 home runs in my Major League Baseball career. That one would have been 100. The funniest thing about it is, though it doesn't count, whenever I see Rick Sutcliffe, he he will – want to tell everybody the story, but then he'll say, but it didn't count. And I'll, and when he walks away, whoever he's telling the story to, I'll say, yes, yeah, it didn't count, but he still remembers that it happened. And that's, you know, that's how I see it. Yeah, it didn't count, but there's no denying the fact that it did happen at that time. Right, right. Oh, Phil, um, this has been great. And I, I, I really do. Um, I feel like I, I can keep talking to you probably for another hour. But um, uh, I really enjoy you coming on board today um, and being the leadoff hitter for us. This is our first podcast here at Sports 360, and it's it's been a good time. So I just want to thank you uh, for joining us. Well, I thank you, too. I mean, because I don't get a chance to to, to reminisce about my time when I played because I, I, you know, I, I feel like I was a good player, but I was blessed to play against a lot of great players. And yes, there's a lot of other great stories I could tell, but I, I just feel honored and blessed that you chose me to be your, your leadoff hitter. <laughs> well, uh, I, I'm, I feel the same. So uh, once again, I just want to thank you for being with us today. Well, thank you very much. All right, Phil Bradley. I hope you enjoyed that insightful commentary from former Major League player Phil Bradley. Phil Bradley is a throwback man. He's a no-nonsense, call-him-as-he-sees-him kind of guy. And if you like what you heard, let us know. Leave us a comment. Tell us what you think. We'd love to hear from you. But for now, we got to get on up out of here. But we'll be back again with another guest that you won't want to miss right here on Sports 360. Scully, take us home. <laughs>